it's Mercedes and this is the West Block. This week we had a unique opportunity, the chance to sit down with Canada's longest serving chief of the defense staff. That's basically Canada's top soldier, the top general. And General Vance has been doing this job for a remarkably long time. Many thought that when he started, he might serve the traditional three years, but instead he saw the military through everything from ISIS attacks and the counter-ISIS mission that the Canadian Armed Forces conducted in Iraq. General Vance has seen a lot in his career, and even just in his time as CDS, where he oversaw everything from Canada's counter-ISIS mission in Iraq to the introduction of Operation Honour to stop sexual harassment and assault in the Canadian Armed Forces, right up to the pandemic response where we have seen the military helping out in long-term care homes across this country. So where does General Vance see the Canadian military going in the future? What are his successes and his failures? And what does he think needs to be changed to keep Canada safe? This is my conversation with him. Joining me now is General Jonathan Vance, Chief of the Defence Staff, outgoing Canada's longest-serving chief. General Vance, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to have you. You know, you have spent a lot of time in the military, your whole life, and so much of it at the pinnacle in command. You've overseen everything from the counter-ISIS mission to the response to sexual harassment to the COVID pandemic and the military response. When you reflect back on your time, what will really stand out to you? Well, I'll tell you what stands out to me uh, above everything else is the incredible performance of the men and women of the armed forces. Um, it is you know, a, a singular uh, important part of this job is to do the analysis and ultimately provide the advice and then write the orders uh, that put people to uh, to missions. Uh, but the real brilliance occurs on the ground and in the air and at sea uh, by the men and women of the armed forces. Uh, there's nothing unique that a CDS does other than th that part of launching the operations and uh, providing the advice to government uh, and the, you know, the obvious supervision that would occur at the strategic level. But honestly, what stands out to me day in and day out uh, is the the superb performance and character and quality of our people. That will all, and that always has been the case for me from uh, as a platoon commander all the way up to CDS. Um, the, the true magic of the armed forces happens uh, at that tactical level. As long as we get all the rest of it right in terms of the orders and so on and the support, uh, the magic occurs at the tactical level. And that's what stands out to me uh, every single day and always has. The world for many is a frightening place right now. It's a violent place for a lot of people. It's a hungry place for a lot of people. It's a place with a horrific virus that has changed all of our lives, spreading around the globe and continuing to kill people. When you look at the military and at Canada from the CDS perspective, what do you think the single biggest threat is to our security? Well, I don't think there's any one single threat. The, 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 the threat is the amalgam of all the threats. Uh, whether it's uh, Canada uh, in a global landscape of great power competition and the potential for conflict, um, whether it's the spread of terrorism, whether it's the spread of xenophobia that uh, contributes to uh, destabilized uh, situations around the world, uh, whether it's the uh, increasing intolerance expressed through uh, the various uh, 
racist, white supremacist, um, fundamentalist, all of those uh, sort of intolerant approaches uh, creates instability. And instability is uh, where armed forces really start to pay attention uh, because instability can lead to conflict. And uh, where there is conflict, there is the potential for the armed forces to be involved. And uh, Canada being the nation that it is, relies not only on stability here at home, uh, but stability around the world with our, you know, with, with those with whom we trade, uh, the access to trade, uh, the more peaceful the world, the better it is for Canada. And so all of that is of concern. Mercedes, it's an amalgam. It's never just one thing. You mentioned uh, white supremacists and radical right-wing organizations. We saw what happened in the United States at the U.S. Capitol. It's been something that the American military, the National Guard, has had to respond to. Do you think that the Canadian Armed Forces would ever have to respond to a similar situation like that in Canada? And if so, are you prepared to do so? Obviously, that's a hypothetical, uh, Mercedes. Uh, I appreciate the question. Uh, the armed forces um, would respond uh, to the legitimate calls for force uh, by the government of Canada in whatever situation. I personally do not see that sort of thing materializing in Canada, um, but you know the, the armed forces um, is uh, you know an instrument of the government. Uh, but I, I got to tell you, I, I want to be really clear here. Uh, I don't see that episode playing out here in Canada at all. Um, I, I don't see it for a, a variety of reasons. Uh, we're a different country um, that, that doesn't generate that sort of uh, response. Uh, that said, um, what was interesting and what remains interesting to me uh, when you talk about the military response, probably the most significant uh, of the military responses wasn't the tactical action at the Capitol, although that was important. Uh, it's the response by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, in writing an open letter to all members of the armed forces describing that situation, uh, describing how antithetical that situation is to the values of their armed forces and their respect for the rule of law. And it's that action uh, by their military and by our military as we continue to uh, battle with anything that would be um, uh, inconsistent with the values of the, uh, the the type of institution we must be. That's that's very important and shouldn't be lost on people. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi called the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. She was so concerned about what President Trump might do. She was worried about him instigating hostility somewhere in the world outside America uh, if things continued along that path. I know you had a conversation with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs in, in the last couple of days. What did you talk about? Well, of course, those conversations uh, are necessarily uh, private. Um, I was given um, uh, an overview of what had occurred uh, and the approach they would take. Uh, Mercedes, I have no business or understanding of how that, um, that conversation went uh, between he and the speaker. Uh, it's, it's really none of my business. I can assure you, though, that the chairman um, made it very clear that the national command authority is intact uh, the military is steady, uh, and I gained from that no reason to be concerned uh, about the things that the speaker was concerned about. 
legitimate uh, conversation for her to have uh, with the, the chairman, uh, not, not my partnership, uh, but the, the chairman and the military are rock solid in their duties and responsibilities to that country. Are you concerned at all in these final days of the Trump administration about instability that could affect the Canadian military coming from the U.S. or interfering with our, our military to military relationship? Because the Canadian military works very, very closely with the U.S. and, and depends on it for a number of things. I'm not concerned at all. Um, I'm not concerned about a military threat to Canada. Uh, I think there are a, a range of things that people in the security domain uh, will be paying very close attention to. Um, but uh, from a military to military perspective, the relationship, the functions that we perform uh, defending uh, Canada and North America, uh, the long-standing partnerships we have in any number of domains, uh, including our deployed operations, uh, I have absolutely no concerns. What about in your own ranks? Because there has been concern and there's been criticism of the Canadian Armed Forces for having uh, people who were member of the Proud Boys, uh, those who expressed interest in QAnon, uh, white supremacist organizations, for example, Patrick Matthews, who crossed the border into the United States, where he was subsequently arrested by the FBI. Corey Hurin, who smashed through the gates at Rideau Hall, was a Canadian Ranger. Um, and I know that this is something you have your military intelligence looking into and tracking. How serious of a problem is this in the Canadian Canadian forces? Well, it depends on uh, a range of things. It's a, it's a serious problem, period. Uh, because uh, even as our, our, our minister has said, e even one incident uh, has the potential to um, you know, tarnish a reputation uh, of the armed forces as, as an institution, a, a flagship institution of this country. Uh, and it is, it is not uh, what we want. It's also an indicator that uh, any one of those individuals may have poisoned the life or uh, had a, a negative impact on the lives around them of people in the armed forces, uh, affecting morale, operational effectiveness, and cohesion. Uh, and that's not good either. So it's serious, period. Um, the scale uh, and the depth and the penetration uh, of this in the armed forces, we don't know all the answers to that, but we're continuing to uh, to try and find out. What we must do, uh, and what you'll certainly see uh, the next CDS uh, carry on with, is we must get our policy base right, based on the rule of law, uh, correct administration of our troops. And I know it doesn't sound all that compelling, but ultimately we uh, live or die by the policies that we have that uh, exclude people or include people or deal with them uh, if they step out of line. We put a lot of work after the Proud Boys incident, we put a lot of work into a hateful conduct policy. It was a direct reflection of what we learned uh, through the process of Operation Honor. And one of the uh, important recommendations from Madame Deschamps was to have uh, uh, better definitions, clear definitions, and a clear policy basis upon which we would act. We did that. Uh, there's, there's lots more to go. Um, we must, uh, as well, uh, again, a lesson from Operation Honor. Uh, this is all about getting the cultural tone, uh, the culture of the armed forces correct for the age that we are in. And that doesn't mean that we back off from operational excellence. That doesn't mean we back off from being uh, the, the, the nation's uh, defense. That doesn't mean we give in any domain uh, uh, any uh, re you know, 
reduction to standards or anything else. What it means is that uh, we, we have to be not only the force that can fight with the correct operational culture that values the things that are important in warfare today uh, and tomorrow, but we are also uh, an important institution in this country. And Canadians look to us and expect us to be a reflection of the country, uh, the best of the country. And so, um, if that but there are groups who say that you're you're not you're not doing enough to fight this. That what is your response to those groups, like the Canadian Anti Hate Network and, and others who are saying you know the military just isn't taking this very seriously? Yeah, uh, I understand that uh, that uh, many of those organizations uh, would want us to be. Uh, overtly uh, demonstrating far more intolerance. Uh, the, the simple fact is that um, I and every commander that I know of has spoken actively about this and we put the policy base in place and that policy will continue to evolve. So no excuses, uh, but we, we, we are actually saying what we intend. There is a, uh, an interesting phenomenon though um, by some groups that want an automatic, visceral reaction to an individual to result in the immediate dismissal, uh, the removal of their livelihood, uh, and abandoning the concept of due process while dealing with an individual. And of course, we are beholden to and uphold all the laws of the land, including uh, the need for due process. So we must demonstrate our intolerance for all of this through the rule of law. And sometimes that is not nearly as fast uh, or nearly as showy as some would like. But I guarantee you the intolerance for this is there. And although um, it, it sometimes takes time, it, uh, my experience is it usually results in the right answer, having respected due process. Now I will tell you that there are other things that, that may very well occur in this country uh, over time as uh, the intolerance for these behaviors or these groups uh, manifests itself in different regulatory frameworks or laws. Um, and where it's very clear, um, if you are a member of a group and it's illegal to be a member of that group and we can demonstrate you're uh, a member of that group, then you can be dealt with criminally as well as administratively. Uh, so uh, there's a, I think there's a ways to go yet. Uh, this is a direct reflection of the wishes of this country, its leadership, and the wishes of the leaders in this institution, in this profession of arms. Uh, and it will be done, and it is being done. Uh, I, I reject the idea that we aren't taking this seriously. We're taking it seriously in a serious way, in a way that uh, allows us to act correctly with our individuals. That said, um, there's, there's more to go. Uh, there's there's uh, better things that we can do. We must be able to find better tools to screen people out. Uh, we don't we don't have all the uh, the tools available to us that would allow us to penetrate someone's life to the extent that we could find out what they think and what they believe. Um, I don't know if that would come, but we rely on people being honest with us as they go through a recruiting process, um, and uh, where they are or have been dishonest with us, then we can uh, challenge them with irregular recruiting and dismiss them. Um, I would also like to add here um, that um, there are many cases, probably as many cases, of the armed forces changing people's behavior, changing their opinion. Uh, we're a national institution that takes the values of this, of this nation seriously. 
and we bring in young, partially formed people uh, and train them. And we want to make certain that anything that we're doing doesn't lead to uh, those kind of behaviors and more importantly, expunge them. There's a lot of work to be done here. Uh, it's a good journey for us because uh, the operational culture of the armed forces is one that needs loyalty, integrity, duty, uh, and upholding of those values while also bringing all of the military might to bear that we need to. Let's talk about Operation Honor. It, in many ways, has been the capstone of your time in the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, this was something that was launched after Madame Deschamps' report. I know personally, I talked to lots of folks in the military. I've been around it a long time. They didn't think this was a problem. They thought that the report exaggerated things. Uh, there was problems with the military justice system that I remember talking to you about that I was reporting on in terms of how people were being treated, able to plea bargain, for example, instead of being you know, uh, actually treated seriously. It was a slap on the wrist. You brought in the ability to administratively discharge people. Despite all of the public messaging and all the maneuvering, you haven't seen that much of a dent in the actual sexual harassment that is being reported in the Canadian Armed Forces. You're saying zero tolerance, it's nowhere near zero. The most recent numbers we have is over 300 incidents in 2019, down from 413 the year before. Why do you think Operation Honor has not been successful? Well, of course, you've asked the question in a way uh, that I won't answer, Mercedes. Uh, I think that Operation Honor um, has some uh, success to it. Um, I said at the very beginning of Operation Honor that this was going to be a long, multi-generational effort. It's a campaign. It never ends. Uh, it is a statement of our values and put in place uh, and evolved over time the policies uh, that govern our, our act, uh, our actions. Um, if the measure of uh, Operation Honor is um, that there are zero cases ever of sexual misconduct, uh, if that's the, the only measure, uh, then you are uh, asking a question on the kind of same path that I was when I started Operation Honor. I learned uh, as we went through the development of the tool sets around Operation Honor, uh, that it's also very important to look at and have good policies around how affected people are treated. Um, recognizing that they have been harmed and treating them correctly. Uh, and those policies continue to evolve and will do so with um, uh, a, a number of things, including the military justice. Um, Operation Honor has uh, not ended the horrible phenomena, but it has reduced it and it continues to reduce. And I'd like to think uh, that although we are all impatient uh, and we have been judged uh, by some as not ending the phenomena yet, uh, and therefore it's a failure. Um, uh, this is a long-term effort. Uh, it is uh, a forever effort. It reflects the need to value everybody in the armed forces and treat them as the professionals they are and employ them as the professional thing. So does that mean that you think the current numbers are acceptable, that you think this is an acceptable level of progress you're at right now? Absolutely not. Uh, the acceptable number to me is zero. Operation Honor has got to get us uh, to eliminating the phenomenon. Um, and so uh, it is a matter of um, continued effort. 
to continue to evolve the culture. Culture takes time. Culture change takes time. Uh, and uh, I've learned a great deal uh, from the experts um, and from Marie Deschamps herself about what we need to do to tackle this. There's another thing that's pretty clear to me as I look around Canada and around the world is uh, in many ways, uh, the Canadian Armed Forces are in the vanguard of many of the institutional level uh, type efforts. Operation Honor is a, is a one-up. And so we're learning. And it may be, in fact, I would be uh, wrong to think that we've got it right. Uh, it needs to continue to evolve. We, so it's, it's not a, uh, a dead issue at all. Uh, it is not a one and done. And it will never be. The need to be able to prevent and respond correctly will uh, last forever. And if we don't have to respond because there are new incidents, good. I do know uh, from our statistics uh, that the incidents, um, the, the rate of serious, harmful, violent incidents is reducing. Uh, and the rate of intolerance and therefore reporting uh, on uh, incidents that some have dismissed as minor, but we know that they are significant to the individual who is affected, uh, that people are reporting more and more. So, and so uh, I guess it's up to others to judge Mercedes, it's, and it's ultimately up to the the men and women of the armed forces to judge if, if it's working or not, um, and at what point is it, it is successful. But Operation Honor is not going to end. General Vance, I, I have to ask you the same question I asked Brenda Lucky and the same question that I asked the Prime Minister at one point. As a leader, when you look back on the culture you're trying to change, are there things you would have done differently in your career? Um, yeah, well, as a, 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 you know, through the entire career, uh, I would have certainly paid more attention. Um, didn't really uh, see this. Um, and the, the Sean report was a, uh, was a shock to me. Um, and it pointed uh, me to a very serious issue uh, because at the same time as that was happening, we also knew that we, just out of sheer survival as, a, as an institution in the country, um, to maintain a recruiting base and to be able to uh, evolve with the changing character of warfare, we needed to harness a far broader, wider, diverse spectrum of our population. And so this was an indicator, just like the Proud Boys were an indicator that we might have some of this wrong. And so uh, that's why Operation Honor was taken on seriously. It's to, to deal with the phenomena, but also to protect the institution uh, so that uh, we are still uh, and become an ever more attractive place for women and men to join uh, and be a part of this uh, this effort to defend the country. Um, had I, um, I've got to tell you, uh, I've reflected on this a lot. Uh, Madame Deschamps uh, was brilliant. And uh, in the very uh, spare, uh, tight wording of those 10 recommendations was the answer. I wish I had keyed on cultural change and support to victims or to affected people harder, faster, more thoroughly uh, than I keyed on the uh, education uh, and prevention part. I, I 
honestly believe that if we made this an issue, a big issue, and I did, that there would be a very natural and obvious and uh, clearly demonstrable change. And I was wrong. Uh, and what it needed was uh, a wider effort that uh, addressed all. Um, I don't know if that wider effort would have changed the numbers uh, or changed the, uh, uh, the, the perception, um, but uh, we've now got that in place, the cultural change strategy. Uh, we are dedicated to it for a, a whole range of reasons, but uh, the protection of this institution, the protection of our people, and the, the, the need to be certain that the armed forces will be successful in the future with the, uh, with the, the most diverse uh, group of Canadians we can get in here. And so that's, that's what I learned um, through the course of Operation Honor. Uh, and if I had a do-over, I would have concentrated on that, uh, those other parts equally hard. General Vance, let's talk about the pandemic. The Canadian military was pulled into that in a way that I don't think anyone had expected. Uh, they were in homes, helping the elderly, helping those uh, who were vulnerable. There's a possibility you could be called back in. I had some documents leaked to me in late December that showed some of your planning and showed real concern about the possibility if the second wave is worse in the care homes and the Canadian Forces has to step back up, that that could be happening simultaneously with flooding. Do you have the capacity to carry out both of those operations at the same time? And are you worried about the toll that could take on your troops? Um. I'm not worried about our capacity. We have the capacity. Uh, obviously, I don't have uh, metrics around how much we would be required in any additional support to the COVID response or the vaccine rollout. Uh, but given what we know and given what we're planning for, uh, we have the capacity. There's no question. We are, our medical capacity is limited. Uh, we have a lot of other capacity that relates to the, uh, the floods uh, or any natural uh, disasters. Um, and we have some capacity to support with vaccine rollout. We have been very busy, uh, less uh, obvious perhaps than the long-term care facilities, but we've had a lot of troops engaged uh, and, and some First Nations to support them in terms of COVID response. And we're gearing up um, across Canada to help with the vaccine rollout if necessary. So the answer to your first question is yes, we have the capacity. The toll on the troops uh, is felt in many ways. Individually, uh, it's, it's been a high operational temple for many people, particularly for uh, our, our medical uh, group. Uh, our health services have been flat out because they're taking care of us. And as you saw, they were taking care of uh, the elderly. We're still operating overseas. Uh, we're still rotating uh, contingents uh, back and forth in Latvia and the Middle East and so on. We're still putting ships to sea. Uh, so there's a lot for our medical people to do. So they are um, uh, really very much the unsung heroes uh, of this pandemic for us and for many Canadians. Um, and uh, I would worry about their capacity. Uh, and therefore, we must be very careful about how uh, we develop plans and move forward. Uh, the toll is also felt, um, as everybody else does, um, in terms of mental health and satisfaction in, in, in your life as you're locked up. We've had, we've had to have a lot of people uh, work from home. Um, it is um, It has impacted our ability to recruit 
we're, we're recruiting, we're training, but it's it's reduced the levels because we're respecting uh, public health measures as we train, so we can't be as dense in classrooms and elsewhere as we normally would be. Um, and so that toll is felt by those who um, are maybe having to work extra hard because they haven't got the, the other uh, colleagues around them that they need. So it affects us like it affects um, many in Canada. Uh, nonetheless, we have to deliver, and we will. It's been a tragic year for the Canadian Forces. You lost nine people in training accidents. Uh, that is a very high number. I've been covering the military a long time. I, I don't remember seeing one that high during my time. The one that, that perhaps in many ways stood out the most for Canadians because we saw so much on it was the accident with the snowbirds that killed Captain Jennifer Casey. She's somebody who I'd worked with, many other journalists had worked with, uh, a really phenomenal person. But there were questions about the snowbirds after that, whether we should still be flying planes that are that old, whether there are problems with the ejection seats functioning properly and parachute deployment. I know that in that specific instance, it's all still under investigation, but do you think we should be taking the risks the snowbirds could present for entertainment and not operational reasons? Mercedes, uh, one of the things I've learned, and I'm not, I'm not trying to avoid you here, um, I have to respond to facts uh, and not intuition. Uh, and the facts will come with the flight safety report. And uh, because even in your question, there are, uh, not meaning to be critical, uh, but there are uh, inaccuracies. And so- well, What are the a, inaccuracies? Well, uh, they're an old plane. They're an old design, uh, but they're rebuilt repeatedly, um, for example. Um, and so it, it really is up to the command of the Air Force. Uh, and I've got to respect that space. I've got to respect the, uh, the integrity of the flight safety reporting. Uh, CDS can't weigh in on arriving at conclusions before the professionals who do this for a living do their bit. It would be entirely inappropriate. Uh, the snowbirds are important to us, not just for entertainment. Uh, it is a way for us uh, to show people, young Canadians across the country, that there is uh, there is an armed force, and that there it's the snowbirds have inspired people to want to fly. They've inspired people to join the armed forces. They raise spirits, good for national morale. And so the value proposition uh, uh, on those intangibles versus the dollars and cents uh, and the lives lost um, is an impossible thing to try to reconcile. Um, but I do know that the Snowbirds are valuable. I do know that that is a proud team. It's a proud squadron uh, and they love what they do, just like the Skyhawks love what they do, just like the Oriole uh, crew loves what they do. Um, to portray, demonstrate to Canadians, um, that there are great things to do in the armed forces. Uh, it will be up to others uh, to determine whether or not uh, and how to ensure that the value proposition and the safety uh, going forward are met. General, I know you've said you're not concerned about potential defense cuts, despite the fact that the government has spent billions and billions of dollars going out the door. Defense is the largest discretionary item in the budget. 
you still don't have new planes, which we were talking about even before you became the CDS. The, we don't know if it'll be the F-35 or what's going to replace the CF-18. We are waiting for new ships. We're waiting for a lot of money to do a lot of things. I spoke with General Rick Hillier right before Christmas, and he told me he is worried about defense cuts. So what makes you so confident that the government is not going to find some savings around the military? Well, the government's put out a policy. Um, you know, I, I, I never expected to have the planes as a function of, a, of a, the result of the competition uh, by the time I finished being CDS um, and, and didn't know I was going to go this long as CDS. Uh, so uh, what's, what's important on the planes is there's a competition and all competitors are in it and the, the best plane for the armed forces uh, for Canada will be selected. The ships will be built. Um, you know, the vehicles for the Army are rolling out. Uh, the government has put uh, very clearly uh, a defense policy out to the public and has shown the public uh, how the dollars and cents um, that they've uh, put towards that policy contribute to the outputs of the Armed Forces. They have demonstrated in an in a extremely transparent way, um, and we continue to update it, uh, with the, with you know, the, the, the public disclosure of, uh, you know, uh, planning where the dollars and cents go. Um, governments can and, and do uh, move money. In. And it, it, it's, it's entirely up to them whether they do or they don't. Uh, this policy needs that money. And if you change the money, you may have to adjust the policy. And so that's fair. Uh, at, at this time, I have no indication whatsoever. In fact, quite the opposite, uh, where there are still, you, you've heard my minister talk about NORAD modernization. NORAD modernization will need to occur. It is the unwritten, unfinished chapter of the defense policy. And so I would anticipate that there would, uh, we would need to move forward with the potential for additional funds. And so, um, you know, CDS's, um, you know, can work in the policy environment and what their minister tells them. And my minister told me no cuts. So that's what I'm working on. I think anybody else that says they're worried about it, are worried about it because they don't want cuts. Well, I don't either. Uh, but I can look at a policy and look at the, uh, the money and the investment tied to it. Uh, I can hear a minister uh, say, Here's, you know, we're going to execute this. He's publicly said he doesn't see defense cuts coming, and we're working on a NORAD modernization. I don't know what else I can tell you, Mr. Okay. Well, we look forward to speaking to you in your retirement, too. General Vance, thank you very much for your service to Canada and for making time for us today on the West Block. Thanks. Thanks, Mr. Thanks for covering the Armed Forces. Thank you.